Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Our discoveries, like the work done with Nanogram, take a lot of people and a lot of time. Now, Nanograv is an amazing collaboration of scientists working over many, many years to do groundbreaking research, building new tools for scientists to explore the universe. But all of that is built off research done many other decades by other researchers. Look at the tale of discovery of pulsars. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. The discovery and announcement by Nanograv of the immense achievement, covering over 15 years of data using pulsars from across the universe to detect gravitational waves, not in a small scale, but in a massive scale, using it to detect supermassive black holes. A combination of 15 years and more of data analysis over 50 institutions, papers, and researchers working together from across the world. Ultimately, it's quite possible eventually that this will lead to some Nobel Prize winning work, but there are many write-ups and many more talented individuals involved in this process because science is, after all, a team endeavour. None of these massive achievements or large projects inventing new ways of looking at the universe could ever be done by a single person. It requires teams of people working together. And there are many fantastic analogies and explanations on how important this is. First thing we will say here quickly is it's a new tool detecting and looking at the universe in ways that we can't do here on Earth. We can detect gravitational waves, but relatively small ones. This is massive ones, galaxy-sized gravitational waves, or supermassive black hole-sized gravitational waves, so big that we wouldn't be able to otherwise pick them up on Earth. We can only pick them up using pretty special and amazing things in our universe, pulsars. The astrophysicist and astronomer Katie Mack points out and a nice, neat analogy. Earth is basically a ship in a cosmic sea. If you're on that boat, every once in a while, you might get hit by a wave. And from that, you can know that maybe something went by. That's how instruments like LIGO can detect gravitational waves, and we can basically detect things around us. But this experiment, for the first time, enables us to see the entire ocean, all of the swells and choppiness, and once you know how the entire ocean is changing, then you can start picking up things like ocean currents, other things moving around in the waters or below them, the atmosphere even as well. All of this comes from a detailed map and understanding of the ocean surface and the waves and choppiness in it. In this way, understanding on such a huge scale the effect of gravitational waves gives us a totally new way of looking at the universe, measuring it and understanding it. That is more or less the cool part about this study. Now, there are many much more talented people than I diving into this, and if you're a science podcast person, you probably have already heard enough about this. So I'm not going to dwell much on this anymore. The nanograph experiment is exciting, and the best is yet to come. I want to take a lot of steps back, because nanograph is built around pulsars, and you can't go past the amazing story of the discovery of pulsars. Something we like to do here on this podcast is emphasize and show the contributions of key people in making discoveries, the teams that they're involved in, and others that might be overlooked from their backgrounds, ethnicity, or gender. And all of this and more can be found in the story of the discovery of 
pulsars. We have to go back into the 1960s and look at the groundbreaking work inventing another new type of telescope, a new way of looking at the universe by using radio wave observations and by pouring over by hand reams of paper of radio wave information, researchers, and one in particular, was able to find some really unusual signals. Signals that didn't make sense. Other people involved in the project, including the lead researcher and inventor of this array, were convinced that it was just man-made noise. Nothing else could be so regular or annoying. But one researcher stuck at it kept pouring over that data, building a proof case of evidence, more than enough to justify that actually there was something out there, something worth investigating. And that led to a Nobel Prize. Not for them, of course, that went to the author of another study and also the person who was running and overseeing the construction of this array. The person who made that whole array work found the anomaly and argued for its existence. They were overlooked. That person is of course, if you listen to this, Jocelyn Bell Burnell, and she is now a dame, professor, a lot of other titles go along with her, but way back in the 60s, she was but a grad student, keen and eager to use one of the new and exciting tools in the scientific arsenal to make a discovery. So let's dig into a bit more about the history of pulsars and what we've learned about them since, and that will help provide some context to the current news story of an amazing discovery that is all built on the back of pulsar research. Let's go really, really basic. A pulsar is a cool name, but it's basically a compound style shortening word. Really, the word should be pulsating radio source, but people are lazy. Pulsar just sounds cooler, and that's what we call them. A pulsating radio source, pulsar, like laser, not a simple acronym, but in this case, pulsar is just an abbreviated word. It's a highly magnetized rotating neutron star. Now, one way to think about them is it's often described as the lighthouses of the cosmos. And the reason why they're called a lighthouse is because, as a neutron star, it has a really special electromagnetic field. And this magnetic field can sharpen a whole bunch of emissions. These emissions get shot out and ejected out of the magnetic poles. This is really cool and terrifying because the amount of energy and strange particles involved is immense. But this really concentrated beam of pulsars is created through the fast rotating and dense magnetic field around this neutron star. Now because of the field's rotation, because of the neutron star's orbit, it is condensing all of that energy being emitted, this big stream coming out of it, into effectively a big sweeping arc. If you imagine the way a lighthouse works, when a lighthouse rotates in its plane, 
the light goes around and around and around. You may see it captured in the clouds, reflected in dust or objects, and then eventually it will shine straight in your eye. It'll be really blinding, but then quickly it will move on. This is effectively exactly the same thing that happens with the pulsar. That's why we call them lighthouses of the cosmos, except that blinding flash you see in your eyes is actually a really high-energy cosmic ray bombarding you. And, of course, we're not seeing that. And we're not just the cosmic rays. Of course, there's a whole bunch of emissions and noise. And these radio telescopes are actually picking up these signals, this sudden and frequent, or at least periodic, bombarding of noise. And the fact that it was periodic for any researcher is a sign of something happening with some kind of rule. When you see something reoccurring with a pretty well-defined periodicity, it means that there some, has to be some reason for that to occur. One of the reasons could be a man-made interference source, a machine, an object, a factory, a process. A researcher and supervisor of the telescope where these were first discovered, Anthony Hewish, was convinced initially that the interplanetary scintillation array, this massive array in Cambridge, the United Kingdom, where this was first initially detected, was convinced that well, there could only have been some kind of man-made signal. And there are plenty of man-made noisy signals, radio burst signals out there, that was causing such periodic signals to be occurred, and thus was dismissed as, well, that's just noise, let's not worry about it. And as an aside, Sometimes those weird, random, spiky, and unusual signals are, in fact, just noise. A great example is one that happened in another radio telescope in Parks in Australia. This is a pretty funny story, because researchers were seeing a relatively periodic, strange spike in noise. It was periodic enough, not exact, but periodic enough, that it was maybe could be something out there, but they couldn't find any obvious source, like a pulse or a quasar or something else out there. All they could see was a, a couple of serious periodic detections over a long period of time. Now, they went crazy because they couldn't find anything that they could point it back to, but what it ended up being in that particular instance was the poorly shielded microwave in the lunchroom which was being used at, you guessed it, lunchtime. So you have your periodicity there. And the leaking emission noise from that was enough to throw off the signals in the immensely powerful Parkes Radio Telescope Observatory. Now, this is an example of how noise can infuriate, confound, and puzzle scientists for years, and eventually they can figure it out and get on with business. In this case, it wasn't some amazing new cosmic phenomenon detected in Parkes. It was actually just someone heading up their lunch. A new microwave with better shielding was installed and the problem was resolved. This is an example of sometimes how science can be a bit confusing, but that was not the case back in 1967. Jocelyn Bell-Brunel went and did a huge amount of work analysing all of those vast strip charts, recording all of the signals from the radio observatory, going through them with a fine-tooth comb, tracking them back to sources, eventually be able to prove that they actually did come from a real object out there. No astronomical object of nature had ever been seen. Because, one, firstly, it was so evenly spaced. Every 1.337 seconds. Then, it was so periodic, it was strange enough that it could only be caused by something out there in the universe of a new type of discovery. And later that year, 
Belle was able to discover a second pulsar. And as soon as she found her second one, that started to build the evidence case that it wasn't noise. If you could find two of the same type of thing, that meant, well, all of a sudden you have more serious chance of it being real. Now, the discovery of pulsars had to be then confirmed with other telescopes, because of course, if it was noise, then you have to eliminate that idea that it could be noise. So you had to use other radio equipment to discover it. Now, about a discovery initially in the scintillating array, which is a radio observatory, but pulsars have now been shown to emit also visible light, x-ray, and gamma ray wavelengths. And these kind of other emissions we're able to understand now because we can train instruments on the locations of some of these pulsars, like CP1919 and 1921, the first two initial ones discovered. Now, these all built off some pretty interesting theoretical concepts way back in the 30s of Walter Bard and Francis Wicke, who came up with the idea, possibility, of a neutron star, a small, dense star consisting primarily of neutrons that basically is the end state of a supernova. And based of this, the researchers later thought, like Ludwig Wilter came up with the idea that, well, maybe they could have super strong magnetic fields just following through the math. And then other researchers like Franco Battini suggested that, well, if it spun, like you would see with other areas around the supernova remnants in the Crab Nebula, you could have something with a spinning and magnetic field. This is effectively a parallel stream of build-up work until the actual discovery in 69. Researchers at that point were looking for what could you tie these strange signals back to? And, well, the pulsar example coming from a neutron star was a potential source. And once they had this idea, they could test that hypothesis against, well, actual crab nebula pulses. And this was found to be in line, consistent with all these predictions made by Vardens back in 1933. So the discovery in 1967 was based off a lot of theoretical concept work done many, many years beforehand. Research that had been sitting in the too hard basket until a new instrument was developed. A new instrument that could look at the universe in a different way and enable the observations of something we suspected might be there, but had no way of actually proving. Now, to bring us back from the amazing work of Jocelyn Belbrunel and others involved in the discovery of pulsars to the current day, pulsars are being used as astronomical atomic clocks because of their super regularity and ways you can use them effectively as beacons to align your time, no matter where you are, relatively speaking, in the local universe. But the way we can use this large amount of pulsar data connected together to form a map of the entire fabric of the cosmos and detect really huge gravitational waves, that will open up a new type of observatory that we can use. Not a, an Earth-based observatory, not a one based in space like the Webb telescope. No, an observatory in the stars. This is one using a galaxy-wide, universe-wide measuring system that we can tune in and look at really huge scale cosmic phenomena. This cosmic phenomenon observation is only just beginning. Now that we know, ideally, how to have a tool, we then have to learn how to use it effectively. 
and we can turn that into answering some of the big questions around the standard model of physics and beyond. That is to come, but we are now at the point of having an amazingly huge galaxy universe spanning tool based off pulsars for analysing and studying the universe. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Grange Point. Researchers like Jocelyn Bell Burnell and others have long worked to build and use new tools to peer into the universe. That's exactly what researchers part of the Nanograph collaboration have done as well, giving us new ways to look at the universe through pulsars. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.